we've had the um, this great opportunity, we could say, these last days to explore the interface that we've been speaking about between freeness and unfreeness, pointing towards the freeness that's that life is constantly reflecting and expressing, the freeness that is our nature, the freeness that we're able to touch and taste and live. And in the process of that, inevitably coming up against what appears physically, emotionally, mentally, uh, imaginatively, as being unfree as having the friction of some contraction, some story, some drama, some tension, etc. We've looked at freeness from a physical and energetic perspective, which we were speaking about as the freeness of relaxation. We've looked at freeness in terms of the our reactivity with experience, a tendency to grasp after the pleasant and to reject and contract around the unpleasant, etc. This morning I was speaking about the what, on the one hand, the fundamentally free nature of everything, and yet a freeness of unfolding that is nevertheless what we were calling lawful or um, orderly. Free in its unfolding, but not random. Free, but not chaotic. And on the other hand, free but not ordained, free but not controlled. When we listen to the way we've been speaking about it as a kind of cellular listening or whole being listening, we might say, we listen to the and feel the unfolding nature, we might also feel in that orderliness, we also called it the natural intelligence of things. And we might see it, and we might understand it cognitively. But there's, a, there's an evolutionary movement to things. Free and yet developmental. If we were to anthropomorphize that movement, we might say, life wants to grow. Life wants to evolve. We might say, consciousness wants, it seems. If we speak about it in anthropomorphic terms, consciousness wants to know itself. Consciousness wants to experience itself more fully, more freely. 
And one way of understanding this human organism is as an instrument by which consciousness can experience itself, reflect itself, explore itself, and evolve itself. When we think about evolution in classical terms, in the terms that we've sort of been educated in, what's sometimes called the ascent of man, I don't know if you're familiar with that phrase, it's those pictures, you know the pictures of uh, bent over and then uh, standing up and then homo sapiens at the, at the end. Right. It's interesting. There's a f- few things. One, there's the the assumption in that view when we speak about evolution that somehow we've we've made it. Right. We were evolving, and now here we are, fully formed Homo sapiens, or to give us our full Latin name, Homo sapiens sapiens, right. means. Being that knows that it knows. It's a very, very interesting, I would say very insightful name actually. Homo sapiens sapiens. Being that knows that it knows. So whereas all of life is evolving, means developing, adapting, responding, to changing circumstances, often on, over a, a kind of cosmic time scale that we can't see from generation to generation. But when we look over geological time or cosmological time, we can see these adaptive responses that plants make, that all living beings make. But whereas all of life is evolving, Human beings, maybe, have what seems to be a unique capacity, and it's a big maybe, because there's plenty of other mammals that are highly intelligent, and that we don't really we don't understand what their consciousness is like. We assume the ascent of man, right, that we're the top of the tree, and then just below us, there's some other ones as well, like. Dolphins and whales, usually they ne- get next billing. What comes next? Cow, uh, pigs, and elephants, then dogs, then all the rest. It's, a, it's an interesting kind of assumption, right? It's a very homocentric, uh, humo- human centric assumption, right? We're the best and the brightest. But other animals are quite intelligent as well. Except we don't know. We don't know. We do know that dolphins, for example, seem to have quite complex language. We don't know what they're saying. A lot of what they might be saying is, those humans, what is it with them? (laughs) So, without needing to speculate on whether sapiens sapiens this quality of knowing that we know is unique or not, what we can see is that we have this 
nevertheless extraordinary capacity to consciously evolve. To decide consciously to engage the apparatus of being human. Body, heart, mind. The capacity to direct our attention, like we've been exploring. To take this sapiens consciousness and to engage the fact that it can be sapiens sapiens, that we can know that we're knowing, which in everyday language nowadays we call mindfulness. And that we can then use that to focus and gather and direct our attention in order to consciously explore our experience. Amazing. And we see some of the some of the um, the beauty and the sophistication of that kind of um, conscious development. Fabrice and I were watching the the tennis at Wimbledon last week. Wow. And he's Swiss, right? So kind of. If it was up to him, the Buddha would be gone. Roger Federer would be up here. <laughs> but you know, any there's something very touching I find about any field of excellence. Right? Something where somebody has really dedicated time and effort and care and passion and discipline to develop something. So Federer really is like this kind of sublime, godlike representation of kinesthetic development. Right? Graceful, skilled, incredible timing, loose and relaxed in the process. Right? And there's all kinds of, you know, just it's not just a physical thing, right? I'm not gonna go too much on about tennis, but <laughs> But then, you know, the strategy, when do you hit the shot flat, or, you know, to where, and now they've got all these amazing statistical analysis of where the being, ball is being hit to, and when, etc., etc. So it's just one example, right? Sport as a, as a, is a field where one can see that kind of uh, superlative sort of development. And then there are many others you know, in, in the world of aesthetics, music listen to music where somebody's engaged the same sort of qualities right? passion and care and creativity and discipline uh, etc and then something sublime comes out of that development something sublime in watching Federer play tennis something sublime in listening to uh, uh, beautiful music something sublime in great art the, then also in the scientific field, right? whether it's in terms of technology or medicine, the way and can we kind of use that capacity to uh, develop and um, evolve our understanding of things, our capacity to do things, etc. And transformational practices, whether we call them spiritual practices or um, 
or inner evolution, or whatever we might call them. It's a particular branch of conscious evolution, where rather than trying to evolve um, a, a particular discipline or a particular expression, uh, a musical expression or an artistic expression or a sporting expression, we're actually trying to evolve what it is to be human. And so then we have to ask ourselves, what is it to be human? Of course, there might be many, many answers to that question depending on the, the, deg- the degree of depth, the degree of evolution. Some people might say, well, to be human is to you know, have a body that looks like this. To be human is uh, basically uh, this certain type of evolutionary strain from an ape-like genus that has developed language as being a human. And then we have this idea of the possibility to become what we might say fully human, whatever that might be. So, actually, there isn't really an agreed, and I'm I'm not talking about a biological definition. I'm actually looking more for our existential definition. What do we feel like is essentially human? And what what do we long for in order to realize or to fulfill our humanity? We have this body, we have this mind, we have this heart, we have this sensory apparatus, we have this capacity to act and to think. We have this capacity to know that we're knowing. What do you want to do with that? How far can we take that? What can a human be? So, in many ways then, transformational practices are an evolution of our identification. What we take to be human. Who we take ourselves to be. And different traditions and different practices tend to point to different ways of working with or understanding or evolving our sense of identification. And classically, they tend to go in two seemingly opposite directions. But I think it's a paradox which, as I speak about it, I'll hopefully try to resolve. A paradox where the different different directions actually are both in support of of the same freeness. One direction we might call the path or the direction of non-identification. It's the path, the part that's most explicit offered in Buddhism. Not this, not me, not body, not mind, not self. In the language of this week you might say just natural unfolding. So there's that direction of non-identification, which we might also call wisdom, 
or emptiness. Right? Looking for that which is looking for the freeness of non-identification. We've been exploring that. The freeness of not taking all this so personally. The freeness of having space around this. The freeness of allowing all this to unfold by itself. The other direction, rather than non-identification, we might call total identification. Or we could equally call love, wholeness. So non-identification on one side, total identification on the other. Wisdom on one side, love on the other. Emptiness on one side, wholeness or fullness, we might say, on the other. So those terms are all pairs of opposites. But maybe they're not as opposite as we think. When Buddha gave these practices and um, offered his free perspective, a liberating perspective on experience, he points to three particular areas where identification gets stuck. What does stuck mean? It means can't evolve. Tends to stay the same, tends to turn around the same thing, turn around the same problems, turn around the same storylines. And that's kind of, that's, there's a, there is a certain evolutionary stuckness that can happen to anyone, that does happen, at least for a while, to pretty much everyone. And that in the course of any single lifetime, most people don't actually get out of. Or at least if they do, it's, it's slow that they might, you might say in cosmological sense, or even in the metaphorical sense, might need many lifetimes to evolve. And one way of seeing transformational practices is as a way of actually consciously speeding up conscious evolution. Rather than just waiting to learn our human lessons in the painfully slow way that human beings learn them, we decide to wipe our eyes clean, you know, wipe our heart clean by, by looking, gazing, checking, sensing, exploring, opening, daring, relaxing. Oh, <laughs> good. So as to learn more quickly. Wake up already. And so these three areas of human experience are really worth our care and attention. The three areas, the three sort of um, almost like a central fugal force that our attention gets sucked back to again and again and therefore stuck on until we learn to evolve it, either through non-identification, wisdom, emptiness, or through total identification, love, expansion, fullness, or ideally through both. So first area, desire. What I want. Is anybody familiar with their attention getting stuck in some way on what I want? 
right? Or equally, what I don't want. Right? So the the fixating of attention. I want it. I want that. I want things to be in such a way. If I had that that thing or that experience or that person, whatever it is, if only I had that, then I'd be happy. And of course, we get that. Hallelujah. We're happy for a moment. It's pretty good. But if I had that other thing, and then off we go again. And it seems like nobody in the entire human history has ever said, oh, I need that, and then I've got it, and that's enough. And then there's no more wanting ever arises. And we sort of know that maybe, but maybe I'll be the first. If I could just get that and that and that, and then... So, attention gets stuck on wanting. How do we work with that? One way we work with that is disidentifying, non-identifying from the wanting. That's partly what we've been doing. Pleasant experience arises. Wanting inevitably gets pulled into the orbit of the centrifuge of wanting. And we can let it. We can disidentify from the wanting thought. We can just let ourselves know the pleasantness of the pleasant and just allow it to pass through. Unpleasant object arises. Attention gets stuck on it. I want want it to go away. I want to be free of it. And yet, we see we can disidentify from that wanting energy so as to actually just be able to abide with, make room for, have space. And we that can open up a lot of space, a lot of some significant freeness, the genuine quality of ease and freeness in knowing I've got a way bigger comfort zone than I used to have. Right? That I've got a just more skill, more capacity to let go, so that. Just because the mind finds something to want or not want, I don't have to make the same kind of drama and tension around it as I used to. And there's also the other direction. Total identification. on Love. We see wanting arise. And we, again, it gets a tendency to get stuck. Right, on the thing that we want or don't want. But what if we don't get stuck on the object? What if we really allow, we've also been practicing this this week, allow the experience without getting stuck on the scenario or the object? What if we love the wanting? What if we let ourselves feel the longing, the soif du cœur? <laughs> The thirst of the heart. So nice, French. Right? That's what we found in sort of all that long, long year rubbish from the other day. A new translation for longing is the thirst of the heart. French. Right? What if we let ourselves feel, I want, I want, I want. Maybe there's something actually beautiful about that. I want. It's, maybe it's a movement of the heart. Maybe it's that hunger we spoke about this morning to want to be 
one with life, included with life, to want to give ourselves, surrender ourselves, dissolve ourselves into the objects of desire. If all we do is get stuck on the object, then all we can do is try to have, get, consume the object. But if we allow the wanting, the the thrill of it, the dynamism of it, the, the, the love that's in it, maybe we find that there's nowhere that wanting actually needs stop. That our love of life, our love for life, our longing can spread out infinitely. So, our desires are really worth our attention. Or actually, to speak more accurately, desire is really worth our attention. And we can see what our aptitude is right? in terms of non-identification or total identification. Letting go or allowing. And may, as we'll hopefully see, lead in most ultimately in the same direction. Right? One goes is all-inclusive, called love, total identification. One is all letting go, emptiness, non-identification. And yet, they both move in the same direction, the direction of freeness. Second area of that identification gets stuck on views. What, so if the first one we get stuck on what I want, second area we get stuck on what I think, what I believe, what I hold to be true in some way. And you know, we can, human beings can produce a lot of views. Just turn on Facebook for a moment and wade through what the Buddha calls the thicket of views and opinions. Thicket? Les ronces. Yeah. A thicket is like a, a really, a really tight uh, thing of ronces, of brambles, right? Of uh, spiky plants. And you know, if you get in a bit into a spike when you're on a hike and you get into some spiky plants, and then the more you, the more you get caught up, right? The more you thrash around in views and opinions, the more you just generate and get more caught up in views and opinions. Again, just look at Facebook or the comments section below almost any online news article. The more one expresses some strong view, and then there's a counter view, and then there's this. And the more people get into views, the more they get entangled in the views. The more they get identified with the views. Nothing wrong with views. Of course we have views about things. But the identification with the views, the I'm right, the this is the way we do things. We were remembering 
the monk's rule we were speaking, Fabrice and I, about um, about teaching. And um, when when uh, monastics are teaching, uh, at least in the Theravadan tradition, there's the there's the rule: they're not allowed to use notes. They're not allowed to prepare their talks. Idea is, it's all here. So sit down and sense experience and deliver the wisdom to the listeners. And once we were on um, on retreat in India, and uh, my teacher Christopher was would, would be giving the teachings in that kind of same extemporaneous style, the same style that I generally use. I don't don't really prepare or um, make notes for, for teaching. And a monk, a visiting monk, was passing through the monastery. So Christopher asked uh, the monk, oh, please, would you, would you give the talk this evening? And the monk said, sure, and proceeded to give a very rambling, dull, confusing talk. So at the end of the talk, Christopher said to the monk, you need to prepare your talks. Christopher had been a monk for years, right? So he knew, he knew the rule. He said, you need to prepare your talks. That was rambling and useless. <laughs> or some, some version thereof. The monk said, in our tradition, we don't prepare talks. We just give them just like that. Christopher said, what's more important? Clinging to your tradition or giving insights to the listeners? So, how easily we get stuck around a view, but this is it. Same with the story of the two monks the other the other day, right? Carrying the person across the river. You know, it's it's we it's good to have guidelines. It's good to have ways of doing things. It's good to have some formality. It's good to have views. But how easily the identification makes us rigid and therefore reinforces the sense of self, reinforces the narrow sense of identification. So we can be very reinforcing the narrow sense of identification through what I want. The more the object stands out of wanting, the more the one who wants it stands out as feeling solid, necessary. Same with the view. The more we identify with the view, the more we feel right. The more solid that identification becomes. So we have this practice of non-identification. Knowing a view as a view. Leaving the view behind. Establishing a certain freeness where one can actually abide increasingly with no view or with what we might call non-conceptual awareness. The capacity to meet experience, feel experience, explore experience, without reducing experience to a view of this or that. We can able to kind of drink in experience and explore its nature directly with awareness without reducing it to the story of what's happening.
And there's also this practice of just allowing uh, the other direction, opening to, identifying with all views. Oh, here's the view that arises in this consciousness. Oh, there's a different view that arises in that consciousness. Normal identified mind is busy with which one's right and which one's wrong. When we get into a conflict with somebody, you know, I'm so convinced, it's so obvious that I'm right. Every time I get into a conflict, it's so obvious that I'm right. It's so obvious that the other one's wrong. It's so strange that the other one can't see how wrong they are and how right I am. Except, of course, that in the mind of the other, exactly the same thing is true. It's so obvious that they're right, so obvious I'm wrong, and that's where the, the conflict is. So actually, that shows us something about the nature of views. Everybody's right. right? In their own view, they're right. And we might say, well, yes, yes, but hold on. Some views are righter than others. Right? And that's true. That's true. Right? That's a question of evolution as well. But if we're interested in freeness, we need to be able to meet people where they are. And you see a lot of the polarized political discourse these days, where everybody's being right in their own little Facebook group, right? in their own little what's being increasingly called you know, echo chamber. We reinforce the rightness of our view to each other. And then that serves to increase the sense of the wrongness of the other. But if we want to be free in our views, in this direction of expansion, to recognize, given if circumstances were different, I could be holding that view. Her view, his view, their view. And then we start to notice a kind of solidarity with human hearts. The fact that we're, we, we share the tendency to hold views. And if we look underneath our views, there's often some fear in the way we defend our views. There's often some insecurity that we're trying to protect by, by trying to be right about something. In the monastery in Thailand... Monasteries are generally considered as a sanctuary for all beings. And so there's the encouragement to really respect all of life. It means not um, squashing mosquitoes, etc. And Ajahn Po, who was the abbot of that monastery, he uh, originally came from Koh Samui. Maybe some of you have been there. It's an island in the south of Thailand. This is in the late 80s before it was developed in the way that it is now. And there were pirates who, uh, who roamed the seas, I guess you would say, and, and you know would attack other ships, etc. And Ajahn Po used to go down to teach the Dharma to these pirates. So these are kind of rough people. But Ajahn, I remember having teaching about this kind of, you know, the skillful means in different contexts. He says, when I'm in the monastery, I teach people, not, I try to teach, to encourage people not to kill mosquitoes. He says, when I'm with the pirates, I try to encourage them just not to kill each other. 
So how easily we could get on some kind of superior moral view, political view, personal view, where the sense of self contracts around, identifies with the view, makes us right. The more convinced we're right we are, the more we're strengthening the familiarly identified self. And so we can learn this process of conscious evolution to step away from our views and know a complexity and an ambiguity that's free from rigid rigid view. And we can also expand to recognize the world is full of views. And underneath every view, there's a human heart. Underneath every view, there's a human frailty. Underneath every view, there's a longing, actually, to be heard, to be listened to, to be met, to be understood. So our practice leads us, either or both, towards that non-identification, to know the emptiness of views, the contingency of views. And at the same time, to lead us into that all-inclusive identification where all views could be my views. Where all views are worthy of listening. Not necessarily to the content of view, but listening to the one who holds the view. Listening to the one who's there to be met, listened to, understood. And then the last category of experience that we tend to fixate upon and identify with, which is a little more subtle, is the sense of existence. So, to identify with existence is to basically feel and believe and act as if I exist. And I say it's a little more subtle, it seems so self-evident. In fact, to say that to any other uh, way of meeting life other than I exist can seem and often is treated as basically as pathological. Psychopathological. I exist. I exist. But I exist is the kind of the standard stuckness of identification. There was a place before that that we got to in our evolution. We didn't arrive in the world fresh from the womb. I exist. Look at young babies. They don't seem to have an existential identification with themselves, neither with mind, neither with body. It just hasn't developed yet. And then it develops, and those of you who are familiar with child psychology, developmental psychology, there's classic stages, right? It doesn't matter about culture, uh, it doesn't matter about language. It's, we go through the developmental stages of developing a sense of self. And at some point, if it develops healthily, naturally, well, it develops to this quite sophisticated place of sapiens sapiens, right? knowing 
that I'm here enough to be able to say I exist. And that's just, that's like a way stage. Most people don't get further than that. In fact, for some it could seem even frightening to look anywhere other than that. And it may be that we feel I've exerted so much energy in order to feel I exist, don't mess with that. When we get into kind of various existential teachings, spiritual teachings, Buddhist teachings, there's some recognition of the limited nature of I exist. But because it's much more subtle, when we start to question that, we easily fall off from the extreme of I exist to a different extreme called I don't exist. One sees that sometimes in spiritual teachings. A conventional view, there's a self. And then spiritual view, there's no self. But that's actually to fall back into the previous category. Category of views. There is self or there isn't a self. Maybe you're, you're familiar with Buddhism in some way. You might be familiar with some sense of teachings of not-self, non-self, no-self, etc. So just to be very clear, if you think I'm being heretical, when Buddha was asked directly, for goodness sake, man, tell me, is there a self or isn't there? He refused to answer. So as to not fall into the rigid nature of views. What's very clear is, there's a, there's a strong sense of self. Right? And that sense of self can be engaged with that's all our pra- what our practices are. Consciousness, awareness, directing attention, being present. And there we get to meet and explore this sense of self that's so obviously here. And we can explore it in these different ways. We can explore it through non-identification. Where actually as we step back from and we get some space from our own mind, we see that what I call myself is kind of unfindable outside of the thought of, the I thought emerges. Whatever we take to be our sense of self, if we look for it, we can't quite find it as something solid. We have thoughts about it, but the thought about it can be seen. So if the the I thought can be seen, what's doing the seeing? Oh, maybe I'm the one that's doing the seeing. But then, a minute ago, I was the one who was the thought. So if I can go from subject to object and back again, right? and even conventionally we say that, I thought to myself, say, that's a conundrum. Or we say, my, my mind... So the mind is a possession of something called the self. So sometimes we identify with the mind. Sometimes we identify as the owner or possessor of the mind. It starts to get a bit bizarre. But as we start to get some space, we start to see the natural functioning of mind, the natural functioning of thought, the free flickering 
of ideas and images and impulses, sensations and feelings. As we non-identify, we realize we don't need to take ourselves to be this in some existential way in order to function. In fact, we find that freed from all of that fixation and identification, our functioning becomes more attuned, more clear, more free. On the other hand, we have this other direction. We see there's a sense of self. We allow, and we say, well, what do I identify with? Actually, we find these sounds of the crickets that I say are out there. Actually, they're here in awareness. These beings I'm looking out on that I say are out there. Actually, they're here in awareness. As we open up our senses, our awareness, and what we were calling our existential boundaries the other day, we might feel like all beings are in here with me. Like Walt Whitman says, I'm vast, I contain multitudes. And if we sense, and some of you have spoken about it this week, if we sense our closeness to all beings, all of life, our communion with, our oneness with all beings, one life, love is the only response that makes sense. To open that identification, to feel I am all of this, I met one roaming Indian um, ascetic monk once in the high Himalayas. I was on a long couple of months walk. And I met and I came around and this guy was sitting, just meditating, but gazing out, sitting on a rock, gazing out. Great vista, looking down towards the plains and mountains all around. Sat with him for a while. I said, when you look out, Babaji, what do you see? He says, I just see myself with different names and forms. And Nisargadatta, famous Indian teacher from Bombay, of course, captures that spirit in a very famous line, maybe some of you know. He says, wisdom that direction, non-identification, emptiness, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me, other direction, total identification, opening to it all. Love tells me I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between these two, my life flows freely. And so we attend to the movements of desire. And so we attend to views. And so we attend to the sense of self. We attend to them 
closely, gently, caringly. We attend to them so as to non-identify, so as to get some space, so as to abide free from identification. And we attend to them generously, permissively, lovingly, inclusively, so as to expand our desire until it fills the universe, so as to expand our view until it can contain all of this, so as to expand our sense of self until no being is left out. That's the direction of our practice, the direction of freeness. That's the promise of our practice, that's the possibility of our practice. That's the freeness that this human can be.